the trade unions that we interact with, the laborers and the ironworkers, when we introduced the products to them and we started talking about what we were doing, they actually embraced Tybot, you know, because, you know, they've had customers like me coming to them looking for people, you know, in the peak season and they don't have them. And it's very frustrating for them to have to tell, you know, me as an employer or customer that, you know, we can't send you five guys because we just don't have them. Hey, this is a very special episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. My guest, Stephen Muck, has taken a company that he acquired over 28 years ago that was doing $7 million in annual revenue and built it into a multifaceted, diverse powerhouse doing more than $200 million in annual revenue. Stephen talks about how he's built the business, the role that robotics and automation will play in the future of construction, and why he trains all of his executives to be dragon slayers. There's a ton here. We didn't have a ton of time with Stephen, so I tried to move it at a really quick pace. I think you're going to take a lot away from it. Here is Stephen Muck. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Steve, thanks for coming on the podcast. I'm really excited to be talking with you. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Happy to be here. So I want to go back to uh, 1992. You had started your career in investment banking and made the decision to acquire a construction company. How did you make that choice? And can you talk a little bit about the state of that company when you were acquiring it? Sure. Let, let me let me take you back one step further. Okay. Okay. Because I think it's it's relevant and it's it's maybe a little bit interesting. So when I got out of school undergrad, the first job I took was in economic development. So I actually worked for private nonprofit corporations doing job creation, economic development, uh, creating small business incubators, uh, assisting companies with developing business plans and funding them using, you know, public funding programs to supplement bank funding. So, you know, that was a really unique environment because I had sort of the who's who of various communities on my boards. And so those those board members became, you know, mentors to me in various ways and had a lot of diverse business background. So when I left investment banking to acquire my first business, Brayman Construction was a little $7 million rusty, you know, construction business that was focused on doing subcontracted concrete structure work for uh, the bigger earth movers and things of that nature. Uh, so that's kind of where they were when, when I came on the scene. They had some older superintendents. They had a lot of uh, older equipment. And uh, I was full of, you know, piss and vinegar and ready to rock and roll and, and figure out uh, a business that I really didn't know much about. And so for folks that are less familiar with contracting generally, a subcontractor, general contractor, that's relatively self-evident. But in terms of the stair step up, this is, how, this is how I was thinking about it coming into the interview. And you just correct me if I'm wrong. A subcontractor is, is somewhat constrained and is relatively 
I mean, maybe you're just absolutely world-class in that little subdomain, but there's a lot of competition, a lot of, you know, different electricians, carpenters, plumbers that could potentially bid on the general contractor's job. And so first by climbing up into being a general contractor instead of a sub, and then moving into the different specialties that Brayman has developed, underwater uh, efforts, bridges, dams, these really kind of complex, heavy civil infrastructure projects, it was really a study in differentiation and kind of escaping a lot of the competition in the construction realm. Yeah, that's that's fairly accurate. I mean, as a subcontractor, you know, you, you need your horse to win the race and then you need to be the jockey that got the ride. So, you know, that it, it your odds aren't the greatest. And as a general contractor, you have much more control of your own destiny. So, you know, you're, we work in both hard bid and negotiated environments. Most of what we work in are hard bid environments, which means, you know, if you're qualified and you're low, you get the job, which means you have to be efficient. You know, you've got to be good at what you do. And, uh, as a subcontractor, you know, you don't have that luxury. You've got to have a relationship with that general contractor and that general contractor has to be successful and then ultimately has to select you to do the work for them. And and so what is the muscle or, or, or kind of experience that gets built to be able to consistently land in those in low bid environments because you know you could you can't necessarily forsake safety or kind of basic like cost right. of goods sold or, or things like that where is the competitive edge that allows a company like Bremen to win those qualified and low bid type of situations yeah it, it's really you know experienced people we you know we're margin hunters so you know we built the business on hunting margin making money, reinvesting that capital in our business, in our business plan and, you know, in our target markets. Um, so we've had to make the money, you know, to be able to grow the business. And to do that, we kind of focused on, you know, higher profit activities and the higher profit activities tend to be riskier in a number of different ways. And you're absolutely right. We keep safety first in everything we do. So you can't, you know, you can't, soft sell safety in anything that we're doing and frankly over the years we've we've learned i've learned that having a safety first environment creates a more productive workforce they feel secure they feel safe they know that we're looking out for them and we expect them to look out for each other you know they tend to be more productive so to find the margin you have to rub up against the risk and a lot of our businesses are risky businesses. Our foundation business is risky in that you don't know what the subsurface conditions are. You may have, you know, soil borings that give you some indications, but it's not crystal clear. So that's a risky business. Um, to the extent that we've learned to develop ways of solving problems, you know, in that in that environment, you know, it lets us mitigate the risks maybe more effectively than other contractors, which let us, you know, embrace the challenging work, which is really twofold. It, it, it creates organizational development and it creates the human development in your people by providing them with unique, interesting challenges, you know, and, and at the same time, we still do, you know, mundane sort of straightforward projects, but we're always out looking for things that haven't been done before. And, and so that was, you know, kind of the next question I was thinking about where, 
you know, Hannah and I run a media business. If we want to go run an experiment, we can make media for ourselves. And there's, it takes some time, but there's, there's not some sort of kind of physical output or outlay that has to be a prerequisite for that type of experimentation. You can't necessarily go just, hey, we're just going to go build a bridge somewhere else. That would be way, way beyond the bounds of something that's possible. So as you try to move an organization in the direction of some of these riskier ventures, these potentially higher margin or less competitive ventures, what is what is the on-ramp? Is it, you know, recruiting the right person? Is it, what gives you the confidence to even say, hey, we can go fill that need that we put the bid in for or something like that? Yeah, I think, you know, institutionally, it's having done it before. You know, when we started down this road, we were a little $7 million business. So we've, we've, you know, incrementally reached and reached and reached and grown and done more challenging, more interesting work. Um, another way we approach that is by combining the various expertise that we have. So, you know, we have a marine construction capability, we have foundation capabilities, you know, if we combine those, it lets us go after a combination of, let's call it a, a marine foundation job, which is complex. And there are fewer people who are willing to or capable of going after that work and having the confidence to know that they can get it done and they can get it done right. So it's, it's having the right people, it's sometimes acquiring the right business that brings a certain new skill set to us. Sometimes it's hiring, you know, an individual who's got a specialization and a special capability and bringing him into the team. Um, you know, and, and some of the things that are kind of fun and exciting for us is that we get people joining our team because of the diversity of things that we do. And, you know, Good people want to keep learning and developing their skill sets and working with people who, you know, can help them. And we've got a, an interesting mix of young folks and and some older folks who've got great experience. And so, you know, our young people turn tend to, to learn up pretty rapidly here in this in this world. Yeah. So uh, in that spirit of the acquisitions that you've had in order to kind of assemble Brayman into this company... One of the things that was really interesting to me is in, in startup culture, there's this celebration of equity sales in the forms of your Series A, your Series B, and, it, and people are like, oh my gosh, congratulations. And what you actually did was just sell your equity off to these other kind of outside investors. It was a, it was a, it was a leveraged buyout to first acquire Brayman. Can you talk about the financial construction side of the business? And as you do these acquisitions, is that mostly through debt financing? Is that something that because of your background in investment banking, you kind of had that, um, you know, legibility into how to best do that? Yeah. I mean, initially it was, and it was kind of interesting when I finished grad school and, you know, was trying to decide what was next. The banking industry was kind of a, a nice place to go because ultimately I knew I wanted to be De developing my own businesses and working for myself. Um, so, so developing those financing skills and the banking experience really gave you a lot of credibility for that first deal in particular, because I knew what they wanted to see. I knew how they wanted it structured. I knew what was reasonable from a projection standpoint. So it did give me, you know, kind of a basis for starting down that road. And then as we've gone, you know, the deals are all all a little bit different. Right. But, you know, typically we've bought small businesses with um, a few good people 
in markets that we weren't currently in. So new products. So whether it was, you know, our large diameter drilling business, you know, we acquired, that was the first acquisition. That was a, a bankrupt company that was owned by, at that point, our bank, you know, had taken them, had taken their assets. And we went in and, you know, bought the assets from the bank and went back and picked up some of the people that were, you know, cast offs from the the bankruptcy and brought them back and started down that road. So back then it was very much a bootstrapped, you know, diversification because we were still, you know, building profits and, and building our equity and we didn't have a lot to work with. So there was a lot of leveraging going on back in that day. Makes sense. And that's kind of opportunistic. It's a great deal, maybe more so than like the perfect strategic complement. But as you t- continue to grow, then you can kind of, you know, step back. And that really seems like what advanced construction robotics is, is much more of a stepping back, surveying the landscape and saying, this is something that that needs to exist. And we're going to, you know, apply robotics to construction, which is, is you know, relative to the other industries, been somewhat less automated than many of the other Right. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. And that's a great contrast. You know, that first acquisition being a bankruptcy that was repoed by our our financial institution, you know, uh, you know, we bought the assets for dimes on a dollar kind of scenario and and got the business back on its feet. And then, you know, with advanced construction robotics, it's, you know, 25 plus years of watching the construction industry as a business person more so than an engineer and looking at it and recognizing that, you know, our productivities were dropping, our workforce availability was becoming more and more of a problem, safety had become more and more of a concern, and we started looking at which activities were repetitive and what the convergence of technology was at that point, which was about four years ago, and and really came to the conclusion that the technology had reached a point where, you know, as it was converging, it looked like there was an opportunity to develop solutions for the construction industry and the heavy civil marketplace. And th- and that's really what started is we looked at it and said, you know, somebody's got to do something. And it's much, you know, it's much better to develop solutions for problems than develop technology and then go looking for the the things that it might do in a marketplace. So we we very much focused on the problems in the industry. And then, you know, ultimately I was very fortunate to find the right co-founder and build the right team of, you know, mechanical, electrical, motion control, vision, artificial intelligence, software guys, and pull them together, you know, with this vision to be the premier robotic solution provider for the construction industry you know and and that's kind of that's the position that we feel that we sit in right now as one of the very few um, entities who's actually developed and commercialized you know construction robotic solutions and so when i was researching advanced construction robotics my mind went to aws and amazon where aws's cloud computing was first its first client was Amazon's retail business, that, that e-commerce website. And they were able to kind of sit side by side as a very um, amenable, friendly client to them as they built out the model. And then eventually that spins out and that's wildly more profitable than Amazon's e-commerce business. Right. And it sounds very similar here where because you're, you're in the business of building bridges and you have um, the, the weight to say, hey, you're going to 
try this robot That's out right. on this job when there's probably some skepticism at first. Oh yeah, lots. And you know, take qualitative feedback, see where the opportunity is, and get that actual you know real life laboratory as opposed to the the theoretical laboratory right. in order to roll out that product. Yeah, that that integration capability is one of one of ACR's strengths uh, because of our ability to iterate quickly um, and get direct input from the people with boots on the ground that are actually doing the work, you know, we're able to, to cycle through our prototypes extremely quickly. We understand the parameters that we have to work to from a productivity improvement standpoint to build a commercially viable product. And our, our mission is to embed the least amount of technology necessary to create a robotic solution that has a robust economic impact. And, and that's really what our focus is. And, you know, we're moving on to our to our second robot now, and we're in prototype development there of full size. Um, and that next robot is called IronBot, and it will carry in place rebar. So, you know, another very labor-intense, uh, strenuous activity that generates a fair number of injuries, you know, because of the need to walk on uneven surfaces, carrying weight and do it in unison with, you know, four or five other people because the rebar is long, you know, and then you bend over and put it down and stand up, take a step, bend over and put it down. So there's a lot of repetition. Um, so we're solving productivity issues. We're solving manpower availability issues, and we're solving safety issues all at the same time. Yeah. I I was really curious if you could talk about like the messaging of something like this being implemented, because I know that, you know, the labor conversation is all over the place. I think, you know, literally this morning, the new labor numbers dropped of, you know, simultaneously more people unemployed and more companies struggling to like find, find people, people to, yeah. to fill their roles. Yeah. Um, and that's something that the, the construction industry is not, um, is no stranger to. Right. And so can you talk just in, in broad strokes about how you've managed that through your different construction entities and, and when something like this gets rolled out and you, maybe one of your guys is like taking a sideways glance at it or, 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 or more maybe having a harsh word, like what is, what is the messaging coming from leadership in this type of environment? Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting. There's, I mean, the construction industry is, very slow to adopt new technology. Um, you know, there's a there's a real desire to kind of do it the way we've always done it before because we get an adequate result. And some of that comes from the fact that, you know, our our products are engineered in, you know, significant detail because, you know, they're carrying traffic and there's, you know, there's human life type you know, issues involved and safety issues. And so there's a reason for that, but there are also opportunities to, you know, to adopt new technology and we're trying to push that forward. So one of the really interesting things as we were introducing the robot was that the, um, the trade unions that we interact with, the laborers and the iron workers, when we introduced the products to them and we started talking about what we were doing, they actually embraced Tybot, you know, because, you know, they've had customers like me coming to them looking for people, you know, in the peak season and they don't have them. And it's very frustrating for them to have to tell, you know, me as an employer customer that, you know, we can't send you five guys because we just don't have them. So they looked at the robot as a solution 
for that labor scarcity. And when you drive it down to the individual level, you know, the guys really don't like the work. I mean, it's strenuous, it's repetitive, it's boring. Um, you know, there are higher and better uses of skilled construction labor than doing these tedious repetitive activities. So most of, of the manpower are happy to see these tools come into place. Now, the nuance is if the construction industry is slow and I have some of my people, you know, sitting on the bench per se, so not actively employed in the workforce, then, you know, I may let that technology sit, bring my people back to work first. And then once we run out of, you know, our skilled labor, then we go back and we say, okay, now we're going to use those robots. As the robots become more and more economically compelling, um, you know, hopefully the construction industry is picking up and, and busier. And so, you know, we're happy to have those robotic solutions. But we have seen that ebb and flow. And, you know, in a robust construction environment, um, we see, you know, a real pull for those solutions. You know, in a, a very slow construction environment where maybe there's people, you know, looking for work, then there's a little more hesitancy from the contractors and employers because they want to keep their steady people busy first. And, you know, we get that because we live in that world. So we have seen those kind of nuances. So do you see, from your vantage point, those type of labor shortages? And we've talked about something similar with one of the third-party logistics providers about the kind of shortage or the trouble with retention for, for truck drivers in some of these industries. Do you see that as like if there were the kind of different variables, the just kind of way a, a generation was raised where everyone was like sent to sent to college in certain, in certain ways, blue collar work was like uh, disrespected in, in certain educational circles. Do you see that as a demographics thing? Do you see that? At, like, how do you try to piece apart the why behind those types of shortages? Or is it just cyclical? And it's like this macro cycle is in a, a high build versus a low build type of state. There's going to be a $2 trillion infrastructure bill or something like that. Yeah, no, I, I think there are, I think traditionally, you know, we've we've assigned certain stigmas to working with your hands. Yeah. Um, you know, as a as a society at least in the US and probably in, you know, in most of the developed countries. Um and and we've pushed kids towards, you know, higher education and and I think there's a real opportunity right now from a trade skill standpoint. I mean, we have, you know, we have you know, guys working, you know, with their hands, making six figures and, you know, doing very well. And, you know, I see other, you know, uh, young people come out of college with, you know, degrees and they're having a hard time finding a job, and you know, if and you, a fair amount of debt. Yeah. If, and a fair <laughs> amount of debt. Right. So, I mean, I really think that as an industry, we need to do a better job of kind of sharing the opportunities. You know, I, I describe the, the, um, the construction industry as the, you know, the last bastion of the wild, wild west, you know, and what do I mean by that? You know, well, we're an environment where, you know, if, if you're a good gunslinger and you're will, really willing to work hard and you're a young person, you can get ahead, you know, very rapidly in this construction marketplace. You know, it's a matter of really putting your heart and soul into it and applying yourself, but there's so much opportunity. You know, I've got three or four people running profit centers that are in their mid thirties, 
you know, and some of them started in those roles in their early 30s, you know, and I guess it, it's become sort of one of my philosophies because when I did do my first leverage buyout, I was 31. So I don't discriminate against, you know, 31-year-olds running businesses. You know, as a matter of fact, one of our philosophies here is, you know, we, we like to teach, you know, our young people not just the work that we do, but the business we're in. So how the business works. Um, you know, the upside with that is we get some very energized and, and involved young people who not only understand how to build construction projects, but actually understand the way the levers push and pull to make the business grow and develop and how we generate profits and, and how we plan for the future. And ultimately, you said you started as a $7 million business, when I, at least from what LinkedIn said, over $200 million in annual revenue now. And the only way you scale to something like that is by developing people that can make good decisions on your behalf. It's, you're, you have only so many hours in the day, so many brain cells. Right. You can't make every decision. And so it's only through that legibility into the org and how it functions that those people are going to be trusted to make those type of good decisions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things I joke about. I've got a lot of people running around with my wallet, you know, <laughs> and my credit card. And, uh, you know, the, the, the message I give them is, you know, spend it like it's your money, you know, treat it like it's your own and we'll never get sideways. You know, just, you know, when you make decisions, know why you're making it and, you know, have a good thought process and get good feedback and, and go get it done, you know? Right on. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. We'll ask our kind of last wrap up questions here in a second. But before I do that, I've got one question that I did not plan on asking until I entered this room that we're seated. Uh, can you explain what a dragon slayer is and how important that is to your org? Oh, that's colorful. Um, so, so it comes from me sitting around our, our construction meetings and, you know, at the end I, I used to tell the guys still do, you know, to go slay dragons, which simply means go do the difficult things that you need to. So the dragon slayers have evolved into our senior management team and the, the thought process behind them is, you know, they're standing back to back in a circle with their swords out towards the, you know, the dragons or the enemies or the challenges, you know, of any day, week, year. And inside that circle is, you know, our, our corporate family. So all of our people, um, our employees' kids, our employees' spouses, you know, all the college tuition payments, all the car payments, all the mortgages, you know, and our mission as, as senior managers are to protect and grow the business and take care of, you know, that, that society. So, you know, it's a little bit uh, um, gothic maybe, but, uh, you know, it's really about, you know, the, the other saying that we have here that you may have seen, you know, somewhere on the wall is we what we kill. So the saying there is simply to call out to our people that we live and work in a very competitive world. Yeah. And, you know, it's either our lunch or it's somebody else's lunch. And, you know, we have friends in the industry, but at the end of the day, you know, we're in competition, you know, and so I, I like for them to have that in the back of their mind and, and recognize that edge that, you know, there's winners and losers and, you know, we're in a competitive world. So, you know, let's get after it. Beautiful. Well, um, hopefully the, the wins continue to keep piling up and the, and the team continues to grow before we ask our standard last two questions that I prepped you for, Steve, anything else you were hoping to share that I didn't give you a chance to? 
Um, you know, no, I think, I think you've asked great leading questions and, you know, we've really covered a lot of it. You, you've clearly pulled out, you know, our tradition of heavy civil, you know, construction projects and, and, uh, and tied in, you know, my interest in technology and, and driving technology into the construction world and marketplace. And, you know, that's a real passion of mine. So I'm happy to have got the opportunity to share that. Beautiful. Well, hopefully we can do this again sometime and I can learn more about, building a business empire and building a dam and all these other cool things that you've been up to. But uh, for folks that want to learn more about Brayman, about you, the different things that you do, what digital coordinates can we point people towards? Yeah, I mean, I would just point them at, you know, at our website, um, you know, at Brayman.com and and uh, at ACR Bots, um, you know, to follow both, both the high tech part of our business and, you know, the core construction elements. Um, through those websites, they'll find links to the various companies that we have and, and the businesses we're in. Beautiful. We're going to link that in the show notes for this episode. You can find it in the app where you're probably listening to this or at goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast for every single episode of the show. Before I let you go, Steve, I'd like to give you the mic a final time to issue an actionable personal challenge for the audience. Hmm. Okay. Actionable personal challenge you know, take a, take a risk and, uh, you know, put it out there and go after your dreams. I dig it. Can you tell me about when you made that decision to do the leverage buyout of, of Brayman and, and whatever the perception of risk was at that point in time? Can you just talk through like how you navigated that? Was there a point at which you were unsure if it would occur or if it would be capable to come through? Like what, like when you were at the riskiest point, what was the kind of mental self-talk that got you through that situation? Yeah, I think, you know, and you know, any deal you do has, has, you know, points at which you think you may or may not get it done. Um, and, and so I think that, you know, the concern was that I had a really great job. You know, I was doing a strategy for um, for Nations Bank. So I was buying banks and assets for the bank, reporting to an EVP who reported to um, the CFO who reported to the chairman. So I was basically four seats away from the chairman. And I would get calls occasionally from the chairman asking about different deals we were working on. So it was a super cool job that I walked away from. And they were a little stunned when I did. Um, so I guess I was concerned about, you know, um, making sure that I was doing a good job for them while I was working on this deal, you know, and the deal was pretty personal and pretty consuming. And so was my job. So balancing those two, um, was probably, you know, the, the biggest challenge, uh, I think, because, you know, I wanted to make sure I was doing, you know, doing the right thing for my current employer. And I was very, um, passionate about, you know, what we were doing and the deals we were working on. Right on. I love the side hustle. That's another, uh, consistent theme throughout the different interviews that we've done. I, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. Like I said, I hope we can do it again and, uh, uh, appreciate you giving us some of your time. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. We just went deep with Stephen Muck. Hope you're out there. Has a fantastic day. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the end of my interview with Stephen. If you were interested in our conversation about how robotics can impact heavy industry, move people out of dangerous work, and fill gaps in labor shortage, I think you'll also enjoy our conversation with Jake Lucerarian from Gecko Robotics. His company builds robots 
that inspect large energy infrastructure, keeping humans out of dangerous arenas, and making the inspection process simultaneously more thorough and more efficient. He talks about that in the interview. Go check it out. It's linked in the show notes. And hit subscribe because we've got a bunch of great interviews coming down the pipe. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.